1: working power in the precious. Power. Incredible as they seem, are not the results of mass hysteria. You may wish to adjust the dial. You are currently tuned into the wrong station. Another bowl? (laughs) No, I certainly don't mind if I do. You see, children, young ones, babies, the trick is to never be an artist, only a critic. Now, August Bayer once said that the critic is an artist, and that criticism is an art form of its own, perhaps. He ventured, the greatest and most creative form of all. (laughs) Of course, darlings, everybody knows that August Bear was an idiot, dummkopf, and laughable imbecile, not to mention the most reprehensible hypocrite and self-satisfied goof, to which I might add that he had no idea how to dress. Does this count as a (laughs) name-drop? No, no. In my professional opinion, as the foremost critic of my generation, those who can't do teach. Those who can't teach, bartend. Those who can't tend bar, plunge toilets. And those lacking the moral character for that, become critics. If they come from money. That's the other trick, my dearies. Don't be an artist, and do come from money. Now, if I may drop a second name, my old friend, Practical Sham, made both mistakes. Practical Sham? I'm drawing blank looks. Don't worry, I'm used to it. I often find myself racing ahead of lesser minds. No, no, I can see Old Practical has fallen quite out of favour with the current crop of youth. I'm sure he'll be re-both discovered and habilitated in another twenty years, as such is the tiresome cycle of art. But suffice it to say for now that he was somewhat of a bull in our scene when I was just starting out. You see, I had some notion that I might be an artist myself back in those days. I'd done a bit of work in the medium of flesh, truly nothing inspiring, and I didn't have the work ethic for it, but I was an impressive dresser and had deep pockets, and so for a time the world took my pretensions more seriously than it should have. I fell into the orbit of Sham and his école just around their peak. I know the fashion now is all for clean lines and simple silhouettes— during that era, the fashion among fleshwalkers was for decadence, grotesquery, magnificent daring, and outrequidance. Sham was somewhat known for this. His works were framed by a macabre twist of mind, and while the small, loyal following considered him something of a prophet, the general glut of society saw what he was doing and immediately decided it was not for them. During our long evenings drinking pressed starling liquor on the Weberstrasse, Sham would alternate between interpreting this as proof of his own genius and as a source of deep despair. It all seems quite tiresome in retrospect, but at the time I was somewhat taken in by this mythological construct of the misunderstood genius, and so I was quite happy to smoke my candy blunts and indulge myself in the role of art understander never mind that i produced only minor works at the rate of once in a when i was sober i thought that by acting the role of art initiate i would create myself as an artist <laughs> like so many of us i much preferred play-acting at the artist's persona to the thankless labor of creating art now sham's great noire was a woman named varna crusade Ah, yes, I begin to see some dim glimmers of recognition in those dull eyes now. Varna had and was everything practical act, and therefore hated. She was rich, tall, stylish, handsome. She had shoulders and a jaw, while Sham hunched and gnawed at his underbite. Varna was the first person you noticed when you walked into any room she was in, with her white hair worn up in meter-long liberty spikes, her black goggles and blue lips and a fresh, still bloody, leucoplexus pelt worn slung over her shoulder. By contrast, Sham, with his lank hair and battered tweed jackets, lingered muttering around the edges of the room, cradling his brass hand. But, here's the fascinating thing, my little chilies. Even though none of Varna's fans had any idea who practical Sham was, she did. And not only that, but she hated him almost as much as he hated her. Why? Well, why else do people hate one another in this sick little subculture of ours? Out of brute envy. She suspected, you see, that there was a chance, just a chance, mind you, that spite her fame and his obscurity, that his creations were, well, better than hers. <laughs> Oh, the deliciousness of it. How one does love a rivalry. It's why I try so hard to create them now, that, and because it's something to do in my waning years. Well, things all came to a head at the annual Grand Exposé. Uh Aha, oh yes, chuckle away. Things were then as they are now, are not that old after all. Hop, I see you about to make a remark. Don't make me fling this martini in your face young beast. Huh. It was, uh, well, if I may wax eloquent about the old days, it was the greatest a flesh mockery I had seen before or since. My own contribution to the expose that year was modest. A simple, sleek, furred porpoise held aloft by gas bladders and guiding itself through the air by, oh, sort of arthropod, sort of trilobite wings. Oh, don't flatter me now, it was a bit ahead of its time, but a bit behind other, more precocious artists, and executed with, I'll admit, a lackluster amount of flair. But there was magnificent art that year. Orkelios was still alive at the time, and he had created an unfashionable, but still breathtaking work in the old architectonic style of his day, a sort of living cathedral grown of flesh that he trained to politely genuflect the really clever thing about it was the way he had seated the whole creature with bright blue eyes that had grown into a kind of imitation stained glass truly breathtaking the way the lights shone through it but of course the true star of the show was the piece by varna crusade She was one of the few flesh-markers incorporating plant material at the time, and she had grown an entire oak tree through an enormous swine. Standing close to it, you could brush your fingers along its flank, feeling the roots growing within. The creature's pain was sublime, truly sublime to feel. But in addition to this aesthetic pleasure, the work had a crowd-pleasing feature as well. The trees growing from that enormous hog's back had been espaliered so that its branches hung low enough to brush the floor. Even roach folk could reach up and brush the red-leaved limbs. But the ingenious thing was this. She had grafted different fruit stalks to the trees. And then, since breasts were something of a signature of hers, she had engineered the trees to grow them. The result was, as the hog made its way through the expose crowd, its hundreds of branches were each trailing these pendulous mammary clusters, each nipple of which dripped heavily with a different honeyed nectar. Oh, I can still remember the taste of pears upon my lips, the hog's little tremble of pain as I supped from the teat and the tree drew its water from within the pig's body. Exquisite! Now, Sham had also outdone himself that year, but his work was... more subtle, dark, and complex than maybe the audience was prepared for. His inspiration, he explained to me, had been drawn from a certain order of crustaceans that parasitize the lungs of snakes, segmented worms known as armillifers. The creature he had grown was about twenty feet long, and each segment of the worm was comprised of a skeletal head with wide staring eyes. Each skull's distended lower jaw yawned toward the spine hole of the skull before it. The truly exceptional element, though, was the way he had grown a phallus into the mouth of each skull, and a pendulum into its base. And so this creature moved itself along the floor, inchworming, as it were, in the most shockingly explicit fashion. Needless to say, people found this one polarizing. While certain people of refined sensibilities found it to be a daring and inspired work of flesh mockery, it was not popular, per se, and so at the expose's finale, the Iridium Palm was awarded to Barna Crusade. Sham had seen it coming, and he had spent the entire ceremony becoming ruinously drunk, I will confess, I encouraged this by feeding him drinks all evening long. Even at that tender age, I had that love for a good scene that has made me the critic I am today, and so, suspecting what might happen, I refilled his cup and refilled his bowl, and passed him fresh injections of crystal wasp, and whispered nasty things in his ear, and met his fulminative rumblings with affirmation and encouragement. But the scene that followed was better than even I could have imagined. Just as Varna rose graciously to receive her award, Sham climbed up onto his table, kicking away the crystal flutes and platters of alien delicacies, and levelled a finger at her and screamed Mediocrity. Oh, I could have just died of pleasure. The silence that followed was palpable. Somebody actually let their glass slip from nerveless fingers. After a moment's hesitation, Varna approached the podium. Yes, that very one there, the one made from ribcage and crystal. And in that deep, calm voice of hers, she said, What did you call me? I said mediocrity. Practical spat. I said your work is vague, crowd-pleasing pablum for the single-minded. I said it is bland, uncourageous, generic, and forgettable work that feels nothing offers nothing but what its viewers would expect and that it is devoid of either propositional content or sublime truth. Oh, 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 say what you will about Practical Sham, but he was one of those people whom excessive drink made eloquent or perhaps it was just a monologue he had rehearsed to himself a thousand times in the lonely, seething, tossing hours of night. To her credit, Varna Crusade was absolutely cool in the face of this extraordinary outburst. "'Well,' she said, with a small blue smile, "'the Academy seems to disagree with you.' This provoked an outburst of small tittering from the crowd." But Sham was either too drunk to notice, or too drunk on his own righteousness to care. Philistines, he snarled. I recall being impressed by the volume and clarity of his voice. For a small, nebbish, sullen man he displayed, under extreme circumstances such as this, rather extraordinary charisma. Wastrels lay about scatflies and parasites hooked into the throat-lining of art. He swung his irradiated eyes at the room around him, turning aside the glances of those academy members whose eyes he met as he ranted. Children of a banker, druggist, and military ghoul, who are they, really? And what have they done? What gives them the right to say they know the worth of art? Rich children, epigons of the unscrupulous, who feel the pocketbook they were born with entitles them to taste. They know nothing because they are nothing. They merely have. I reject their judgment. Utterly And now A deep silence fell I must say It was a telling blow for me I almost had to check my nose To see if it was bleeding And I know many others in the crowd that night Felt the same way But Varna Crusade Whatever she may have felt at that moment Appeared completely unperturbed Beneath her black goggles And bleeding stone cloak Very well, practical, she said, in that voice of hers like oiled steel. Then let us pick a jury of our own and see what their opinions are. He hesitated, his flow momentarily broken for the first time. You mean a contest, he said. Yes, that's right. Let's pick a date. Six months from now? Does that give you time to polish up a new magnum opus? I'll go so far as this. "'You select the jury, and I will pay the tab, up front, "'and I will bet you, even then, that I will take the palm.' A slow, crazed smile spread across Practical's yellowed teeth. He glanced around the room, as if to reassure himself that this was not a dream. It must have been the exact scenario he had fantasized about a thousand times. "'Very well,' he said quickly, in a husky voice, as if expecting the offer to be suddenly withdrawn. In six months' time, then, he clamped down on a giggle. You have yourself a bet, and may the greatest artist win. And snickering to himself, he clambered down from the table and scuttled out of the hole, fingers working as if he were in the studio already, and the air itself was flesh. And as the doors slammed shut behind him, we could hear his loud peals of ecstatic laughter echoing in the atrium outside. Mm.
0: This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott, or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda, whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day, at sax.com.
1: Six months later, I was shivering in my formal toga, bare vents exposed to the wind, outside the Hecatomb Grand, which used to stand just off the Piazza diavoli. I was waiting for Practical to show up. But there was no sign of him, and the event was just about to start. "'Eventually I gave up and returned inside, where at least I could cringe in relative comfort. "'It wasn't a good look for old practical. "'The entire event had been staged for his own vanity, and, I suppose, for Varna's, "'and it was deeply embarrassing for him to turn tail and run from it. "'Like most of the twenty-three jurors, I was a friend of his, hand-selected, "'which had seemed an honour at the time, yet now felt increasingly like the gift of a white elephant.' The scandal at the Grand Exposé had at least been delicious, but Shams' subsequent increasingly erratic behavior was completely without fun. Somewhere along the line, I think, the pressure of the contest had driven him over some imperceptible fine line between delightful eccentricity and commonplace drudge madness. I hated to see it, but more to the point, it bored me. I made my way into the event hall and collared one of the android servers, demanding a coop filled with parrots' brains and alcohol. This was quickly furnished, and I drank glumly on my own. He isn't coming, is he? The voice behind me was like a plum-colored train, and when I turned, I found myself staring up into the goggled eyes of Varna Crusade. She had changed her style slightly in the previous six months. Her goggles were now the same lacquered crimson color as her lips and sideways centurion-style mohawk. Instead of the leucoplexus, she now wore a poncho woven from strips of war orca's blubber and stitched together with rose gold wire. I don't think so, no, I sighed. Her lips curled up, and a delighted laughter bubbled up from the depths of her bare belly, up through the sloping racks of her ribs, and out of her mouth and throat like cold water. "'And to think,' she said, "'I almost considered that sniveling little man a threat.' She turned and clapped her huge hands, creating a boom that drew the eyes of all something-hundred guests. "'Practical sham,' she said with a delected smile." is a no-show." She grinned broadly, showing her white, pointed teeth, as a murmur of outrage and occasional gleeful laughter rolled to the gathered crowd. "'Shall we unveil the creations anyhow?' The suggestion was greeted with welcome and applause, and, glowing, she parted the crowd like a giant striding through the sea and ascended the dais at the far end of the hall. There, on either side of the rostrum, a pair of huge cylindrical energy fields stood, like mirrored pillars, reflecting all light, and concealing what lay within them. "'Shall we begin with mine?' said Crusade, spreading her arms to drink in the wave of commendation that rolled over her. As the crowd cheered, she closed her eyes and drank the feeling, and then turned, dismissing the field with a flick of her wrist." And there, within the bounds of what had been the field, stood. Well, can anybody guess? Surely a group of would-be strivers like yourselves must have some clue. Drowned goddess? No, clever guess, though. Red origin, you pretender, that was one of her early works. Ah? Did I hear, daughter of the coming end? Yes, very good. Five points at the young person standing at the back. You'll go far, I'm sure. Indeed, it was Daughter of the Coming End, but not as you've seen it recreated in your dismal little textbooks. No. It was a Neon giantess, naked except for the mask and stockings which she wore. Between her breasts and navel, a kind of window stood, through which we could see not the wall behind, But another place, entirely, a fetid, thriving jungle in a distant world with an orange sun. We, all of us, gasped. It was an incredible development in Vaughn's work, a bold transition from working with plant materials to working with antique technology. A sort of lure, like that of an anglerfish, dangled on a tentacle from the giantess's third eye, and it bobbed succulent and tempting down in front of the portal. As we watched, an animal came through, a miraculous predator, something like a lynx and something like a crab and something like a snake. It lunged for the lure and as it came through into our world, a giantess reached down and caught it, grinning stupidly and rang its neck before breaking off tidbits from it and bending down to let the crowd nibble him from her large and generous fingers. The crowd thronged forward to gawp and fondle at this incredible creation. And none of them, least of all the triumphant Varna, noticed as the second field flickered out. For my part, I was one of the few still paying attention. "'curious to see what work Sham had been so embarrassed by as to not show up. "'And so I was one of the few to jump in surprise at what the second field contained. "'It was a creature so unimpressive as to almost negate the need for description. "'Practical Sham.' "'Yes, it was Practical Sham himself. "'Almost the first time I'd seen him in person in the entire six months. "'Such a recluse he had been.' and for all that work he had nothing to show, only his own body as some sort of empty stunt. I was overcome with pity and embarrassment. Surely he could have come up with something. I drifted closer. I think Varna and I were the only ones looking at him, other than some contemptuous glances from the crowd that swarmed before the giantess. It was only when I had crossed most of the room toward this small hunched man clasping and unclasping his mismatched hands and grinning with a nervous mischief. Only then that I realized my mistake. You see, Practical Sham was covered in scars that had not existed six months before, deep, reddish puckering ones that scored up and down his pale, shirtless body like rift valleys in a desert land. They would have looked almost industrial, were it not for the baroque mathematical elegance of their spiraling sinusoidal lines. I stopped in my tracks. Oh, Lord, I thought. Oh, Lord, he didn't. He met my eyes, saw me realize, and smiled, showing me those crooked yellow teeth. Oh, yes, he had. He had spent the last six months performing Flesh Mockerai on himself. And it was at this point that he began to unfold along the lines of those deep, crimson scars, like some undiscovered blossom of the jungle floor, the feculent scent of whose bloom belies a type of lunatic splendor. Heaven knows, to this day, I don't know how he did it. How he packed so much flesh inside that slender frame of his. Some manner of technology must have been at play, though Sham had always eschewed such things as a kind of cheat. But then again, this aberration of the flesh that was unfurling around him like a black cloud violated all previous rules by which he had bound himself. Shem had despised the old style of Orkelios and his peers, and yet, nevertheless, gothic arches of flesh and flying buttresses of bone began to stretch from his spine like monumental moth-swings from an unassuming pupa. He had found Varner's recourse to vegetable matter even more worthy of his contempt. And yet here were coiling, snaring, catching vines, wide maws of herculean fly traps that yawned from his expanding flesh. And yes, even the new, sleek style that he had mocked to scorn in my own works and those of my generation, yes, even those could be seen at play in this new, violent design of his, in the chrome, fuchsia gloss of his vast, expanding lizard's belly, in his cruel, lacquered claws and damp pterodactyl wings, still glistening as with poisoned afterbirth. He rose slowly to the ceiling, his mild little human form no more to the enormity of his new body unfurling from him than the snail's horn is to the snail. Though he clasped his meager hands in an aspect of silent prayer, the serpentine chimeric nightmare that was now the rest of him writhed and howled from a hundred mouths in damp, flapping cloaca. The crowd before him screamed and fled on either side. He opened his eyes and smiled that crooked yellow smile of his. And then the giantess looked on in dumb fascination as the swarming storm-cloud body of practical sham fell and coiled around her to scratch and rot and suck with crocodile parts and tooth-lined lamprey holes. I looked away. The giantess made a cooing "'mournful noise, it died. "'It struck me as a terrible waste of art. "'My attention was drawn back by the sound of smashing glass, "'and I turned to see Varna Crusade standing on a tabletop, "'screaming and lobbing whole bottles of champagne, "'grenade-like at the thing Practical Sham had turned himself into. "'It hissed and recoiled as exploding glass tore red gaps into its flesh. "'And then it rounded on her, And for the first time in my life, I saw fear on the face of Vana Crusade. And she turned and ran, huge legs pumping as she burst through the front door and out among the snow-covered statues of the Piazza Multi-Diavoli. The sham beast raced after her, trailing a slippery type of oil across the floor. And I followed it as best I could, slipping and sliding in the creature's horrid, intoxicating, ambergrisian slime. Outside, it was even colder than it had been earlier that evening, as cold as the final snow. But all the same, I chased after the two great artists of my time, my erstwhile friends and idols, through the ruins of the glass statues they had smashed on the Piazza Multidiavoli and down the sloping Schmerich Weberstrasse, toward the lower levels of the city. I found a pool of turquoise blot. Varnas, surely down by a shop-front on the Rue de Tisserand, which had been smashed to pieces by the huge writhings of practical sham. I followed the teal droplets, down and down to the bottom of the gemmer's quarter, where a vast stone culvert yawned, like a foramen at the base of our city's skull. Practical! I shouted. Practical! Come (laughs) back! And out of the darkness a lank-haired face emerged, grinning with turquoise blot. I've done it, the face seemed to say. I've won. And then it vanished, down into darkness, never to be seen alive again. (laughs) Victory indeed. Hmm. Oh. Oh, yes. I know what I'll do. All of you, come with me. We're going to take a little trip. Come with me now, just through here. And I'm going to show you something. Yes, of course. I know my way back here as well as anyone. And the staff know better than to raise a stink about me wandering in the gallery's back of house. I'm a critic, after all. You wouldn't stop the cloud leopard to ask what it was doing in the fog bank, would you? <laughs> through here. Yes. "'Yes. That's him. What's left of him. Practical sham. He lived another year or two, you know, surviving in the ancient sewers underneath Christopolis, eating God knows what, although as a starving artist I doubt he ate too well when he was above ground either.' (laughs) But a few years later, the sewer crew found his body, and the gallery paid to have it dredged, cleaned, and plasticized for profit and posterity. It was, of course, the final work of one of the great flesh-mockers of his, or any other time, a technical non to be assured. And yet, well, it hasn't aged particularly well now, has it? It lacks the masterful restraint and cool control over a single concept that typifies his finer works. It is his grandest work, undoubtedly. But sadly, for old practical, it is far from his best. A dully, pessimistic mishmash, a dismal ragbag and vulgarity, I am afraid. What a shame for old Sham. He could have chosen differently. And so here he stays, gathering dust in the back room. And maybe we should have let him rot back down in the sewers. My darlings, oh, be a critic, not an artist. This week's episode, The Better Craftsman, was written by Alexander Saxton and performed by Anthony Botello. The Wrong Station is made possible with the generous support of our listeners on Patreon. Thank you to our new patron, Sean McLeod, for helping us keep the lights, well, off. You can also support us by leaving a rating and review on iTunes, or wherever it is you listen to The Wrong Station. The Wrong Station is co-produced by Alexander Saxton, Anthony Botello, and Jacob Duarte Spiel. With music composed and performed on the piano by Alan Citrin and arranged for the viola and performed by Viola Schmidt, you can follow the Wrong Station on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, and email us at, therongstation at gmail.com. And until next time, thank you for listening.